Chapter Nine of Maria or the Wrongs of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. I resumed my pen to fly from thought. I was married, and we hastened to London. I had purpose taking one of my sisters with me, for a strong motive for marrying was the desire of having a home at which I could receive them. Now their own grew so uncomfortable as not to deserve the cheering appellation. An objection was made to her accompanying me that appeared plausible, and I reluctantly acquiesced. I was, however, willingly allowed to take with me Molly, poor Peggy's daughter. London and preferment are ideas commonly associated in the country, and as blooming as May, she bade adieu to Peggy with weeping eyes. I did not even feel hurt at the refusal in relation to my sister, to hearing what my uncle had done for me, I had the simplicity to request, speaking with warmth of their situation, that he would give them a thousand pounds apiece, which seemed to me but justice. He asked me, giving me a kiss, if I had lost my senses. I started back, as if I had found a wasp in a rose-bush. I expostulated. He sneered, and the demon of discord entered our paradise, to poison with his pestiferous breath every opening joy. I had sometimes observed defects in my husband's understanding, but led astray by a prevailing opinion that goodness of disposition is of the first importance in the relative situations of life. In proportion as I perceived the narrowness of his understanding, fancy enlarged the boundary of his heart. Fatal error! How quickly is the so much vaunted milkiness of nature turned into gall by an intercourse with the world, if more generous juices do not sustain the vital source of virtue? One trait in my character was extreme credulity, but when my eyes were once opened, I saw but too clearly all I had before overlooked. My husband was sunk in my esteem. Still there are youthful emotions which for a while fill up the chasm of love and friendship. Besides, it required some time to enable me to see his whole character in a just light, or rather to allow it to become fixed. While circumstances were ripening my faculties and cultivating my taste, commerce and gross relaxations were shutting his against any possibility of improvement. Till, by stifling every spark of virtue in himself, he began to imagine that it nowhere existed. Do not let me lead you astray, my child. I do not mean to assert that any human being is entirely incapable of feeling the generous emotions, which are the foundation of every true principle of virtue, but they are frequently, I fear, so feeble, that like the inflammable quality which more or less lurks in all bodies, they often lie for ever dormant. The circumstances never occurring, necessary to call them into action. I discovered, however, by chance, that in consequence of some losses in trade, the natural effect of his gambling desire to start suddenly into riches, the five thousand pounds given me by my uncle, had been paid very opportunely. This discovery, strange as you might think the assertion, gave me pleasure. My husband's embarrassments endeared him to me. I was glad to find an excuse for his conduct to my sisters, and my mind became calmer. My uncle introduced me to some literary society, and the theatres were a never-failing source of amusement to me. My delighted eye followed Mrs. Siddons 
when with dignified delicacy she played Califta, and I involuntarily repeated after her, in the same tone with a long-drawn sigh, Hearts like ours were paired, not matched. These were, at first, spontaneous emotions, though becoming acquainted with men of wit and polished manners, I could not sometimes help regretting my early marriage, and that, in my haste to escape from a temporary dependence, and expand my newly-fledged wings in an unknown sky, I had been caught in a trap, and caged for life. Still the novelty of London, and the attentive fondness of my husband, for he had some personal regard for me, made several months glide away. Yet, not forgetting the situation of my sisters, who were still very young, I prevailed on my uncle to settle a thousand pounds on each, and to place them in a school near town, where I could frequently visit, as well as have them at home with me. I now tried to improve my husband's taste, but we have few subjects in common. Indeed, he soon appeared to have little relish for my society, unless he was hinting to me the use he could make of my uncle's wealth. When we had company, I was disgusted by an ostentatious display of riches, and I have so often quitted the room to avoid listening to exaggerated tales of money obtained by lucky hits. With all my attention and affectionate interest, I perceived that I could not become the friend or confidant of my husband. Everything I learned relative to his affairs I gathered up by accident, and I vainly endeavoured to establish, at our fireside, that social converse which often renders people of different characters dear to each other. Returning from the theatre, or any amusing party, I frequently began to relate what I had seen and highly relished, but with sullen taciturnity he soon silenced me. I seemed therefore gradually to lose in his society the soul, the energies of which had just been in action. To such a degree, in fact, did his cold, reserved manner affect me, that after spending some days with him alone, I have imagined myself the most stupid creature in the world, till the abilities of some casual visitor convinced me that I had some dormant animation, and sentiments above the dust in which I had been grovelling. The very countenance of my husband changed. His complexion became sallow, and all the charms of youth were vanishing with its vivacity. I give you one view of the subject, but these experiments and alterations took up the space of five years, during which period I have most reluctantly exhorted several sums from my uncle, to save my husband, to use his own words, from destruction. At first it was to prevent bills being noted to the injury of his credit, then to bail him, and afterwards to prevent an execution from entering the house. I began at last to conclude that he would have made more exertions of his own to extricate himself, had he not relied on mine, cruel as was the task he imposed on me, and I firmly determined that I would make use of no more pretexts. From the moment I pronounced this determination, indifference on his part was changed into rudeness or something worse. He now seldom dined at home, and continually returned at a late hour, drunk, to bed. I retired to another apartment. I was glad, I own, to escape from his, for personal intimacy without affection seemed to me the most degrading, as well as the most painful state in which a woman of any taste 
not to speak of the peculiar delicacy of fostered sensibility, could be placed. But my husband's fondness for women was of the grossest kind, and imagination was so wholly out of the question as to render his indulgences of this sort entirely promiscuous and of the most brutal nature. My health suffered, before my heart was entirely estranged by the loathsome information. Could I then have returned to his sullied arms, but as a victim to the prejudices of mankind, who have made women the property of their husbands? I discovered even, by his conversations, when intoxicated that his favourites were wantons of the lowest class, who could, by their vulgar indecent mirth, which he called nature, rouse his sluggish spirits. Mary Trish's ornaments and manners were necessary to attract his attention. He seldom looked twice at a modest woman, and sat silent in their company, and the charms of youth and beauty had not the slightest effect on his senses, unless the possessors were initiated in vice. His intimacy with profligate women, and his habits of thinking, gave him a contempt for female endowments, and he would repeat, when wine had loosened his tongue, most of the commonplace sarcasms levelled at them by men who do not allow them to have minds, because mind would be an impedient to gross enjoyment. Men who are inferior to their fellow men are always most anxious to establish their superiority over women. But where are these reflections leading me? Women who have lost their husband's affection are justly reproved for neglecting their persons, and not taking the same pains to keep as to gain a heart. But who thinks of giving the same advice to men, though women are continually stigmatised for being attached to fops, and from the nature of their education are more susceptible of disgust? Yet why women should be expected to endure a sloven with more patience than a man, and magnanimously to govern herself, I cannot conceive, unless it be supposed arrogant in her to look for respect as well as a maintenance. It is not easy to be pleased, because, after promising to love in different circumstances, we are told that it is our duty. I cannot, I am sure, though when attending the sick I have never felt disgust, forget my own sensations, when rising with health and spirit, after scenting the sweet morning, I have met my husband at the breakfast-table. The active attention I have been giving to domestic regulations, which were generally settled before he rose, or a walk, gave a glow to my countenance, that contrasted with his squalid appearance. The squeamishness of stomach alone produced by the last night's intemperance, which he took no pains to conceal, destroyed my appetite. I think I now see him lolling in an armchair, in a dirty powdering gown, soiled linen, unguarded stockings and tangled hair, yawning and stretching himself. The newspaper was immediately called for, if not brought in on a tea-board, from which he would scarcely lift his eyes while I poured out the tea, excepting to ask for some brandy to put in it, or to declare that he could not eat. In answer to any question in his best humour, it was a drawling, "'What do you say, child?' But if I demanded money for the house expenses, which I put off to the last moment, his customary reply, often prefaced with an oath, was, "'Do you think me, madame, made of money?' The butcher, the baker, must wait, and what was worse, I was often obliged to witness his surly dismission of tradesmen, who were in the want of their money, and whom I sometimes paid with the presents my uncle gave me for my own use. At this juncture my father's mistress, 
by terrifying his conscience, prevailed on him to marry her. He was already become a Methodist, and my brother, who now practised for himself, had discovered a flaw in the settlement made on my mother's children, which set it aside, and he allowed my father, whose distress made him submit to anything, a tithe of his own, or rather, our fortune. My sisters had left school, but were unable to endure home, which my father's wife rendered as disagreeable as possible, to get rid of girls whom she regarded as spies on her conduct. They were accomplished, yet you can, may you never be reduced to the same destitute state, scarcely conceive the trouble I had to place them in the situation of governesses, the only one in which even a well-educated woman with more than ordinary talents can struggle for a subsistence. And even this is a dependence next to menial. Is it then surprising that so many forlorn women, with human passions and feelings, take refuge in infamy? Alone in large mansions, I say alone because they had no companion with whom they could converse on equal terms, or from whom they could expect the endearments of affection, they grew melancholy, and the sound of joy made them sad, and the youngest, having a more delicate frame, fell into a decline. It was with great difficulty that I, who now almost supported the house by loans from my uncle, could prevail on the master of it to allow her a room to die in. I watched her sick bed for some months, and then closed her eyes, gentle spirit, for ever. She was pretty with very engaging manners, yet had never an opportunity to marry excepting to a very old man. She had abilities sufficient to have shone in any profession had there been any professions for women, though she shrunk at the name of milliner or mantua-maker as degrading to a gentlewoman. I will not term this feeling false pride to any one but you, my child, whom I fondly hope to see. Yes, I will indulge the hope for a moment, possessed of that energy of character which gives dignity to any station, and with that clear, firm spirit that will enable you to choose a situation for yourself, or submit to be classed in the lowest, if it be the only one in which you can be the mistress of your own actions. Soon after the death of my sister, an incident occurred, to prove to me that the heart of a libertine is dead to natural affection, and to convince me that the being who has appeared all tenderness, to gratify a selfish passion, is as regardless of the innocent fruit of it as of the object when the fit is over. I had casually observed an old mean-looking woman, who called on my husband every two or three months to receive some money. One day entering the passage of his little counting-house as she was going out, I heard her say, "'The child is very weak. She cannot live long. She will soon die out of your way, so you need not grudge her a little physic.' "'So much the better,' he replied. "'And pray mind your own business, good woman.' I was struck by his unfeeling and human tone of voice, and drew back, determined when the woman came again to try to speak to her, not out of curiosity. I had heard enough, but with the hope of being useful to a poor, outcast girl.' A month or two elapsed before I saw this woman again, and then she had a child in her hand that tottered along scarcely able to sustain her own weight. They were going away to return at the hour Mr. Venables was expected. He was now from home. I desired the woman to walk into the parlour. She hesitated, yet obeyed. 
I assured her that I should not mention to my husband, the words seemed to weigh on my respiration, that I had seen her or his child. The women stared at me with astonishment, and I turned my eyes on the squalid object that accompanied her. She could hardly support herself, her complexion was sallow and her eyes inflamed, with an indescribable look of cunning, mixed with the wrinkles produced by the peevishness of pain. "'Poor child!' I exclaimed. "'Ah, you may well say poor child,' replied the woman. "'I brought her here to see whether he would have the heart to look at her, and not get some advice. "'I do not know what they deserve who nursed her. "'Why, her legs bent under her like a bow when she came to me, and she has never been well since.' "'But if they were no better paid than I am, it is not to be wondered at, sure enough.' "'On further inquiry I was informed that this miserable spectacle was the daughter of a servant, "'a country girl, who caught Mr. Venable's eye, and whom he seduced. "'On his marriage he sent her away, her situation being too visible. "'After her delivery she was thrown on the town, and died in a hospital within the year. "'The babe was sent to a parish nurse, and afterwards to this woman,' who did not seem much better, but what was to be expected from such a close bargain? She was only paid three shillings a week for board and washing. The woman begged me to give her some old clothes for the child, assuring me that she was almost afraid to ask master for money to buy even a pair of shoes. I grew sick at heart, and fearing Mr. Venables might enter and oblige me to express my abhorrence, I hastily inquired where she lived, promising to pay her two shillings a week more, and to call on her in a day or two, putting a trifle into her hand, as proof of my good intention. If the state of this child affected me, what were my feelings at the discovery I made respecting Peggy? End of chapter 9